I'm glad I, I'm glad I hit every green. Cause if I hadn't got through that day with a chipping yips, you know, down in plantation, there's no way I'd, you know, be holding the Houston open trophy and, and have this three year exemption. My name is Cordy Walker and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking with leading golf instructors, researchers, and golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better and what that means for you. Welcome back to the Golf Science Lab podcast. This is our, our first episode of 2020. I'm so excited to get back at it. Uh, and we have an amazing episode here. So with Lanto Griffin. He won the Houston Open just last year in 2019 um, and has such a cool story. It's so different, um, but has so many good principles and so many good things that we can take away as, as golfers, as parents, as coaches that uh, you have to listen in. I'm excited. We're back with weekly podcasts. We've got a ton of new videos coming your way uh, over on YouTube and social. Uh, just got back, spent uh, spent a month traveling. We were in uh, went to Orlando for the PGA show. I'm sure you saw some of that, um, some content that we put out from there. Then went up to St. Simon's Island, Georgia. We're based out of Frederica Golf Club, um, working with the guys at the Learn- Learning Center there, Tony Ruggiero, Jackson Court, and we had a great time. I think we filled a a terabyte hard drive. So there will be some good stuff coming your way that you're not going to want to miss. So stay tuned for all of that. And I'm excited to get back in our rhythm and our routine and help everyone perform at their best with the podcast, the videos and on social. So make sure to stay tuned. This episode is sponsored by Whoop. I'm sure you've seen Whoop by this point. Um, So many players are wearing it out on the PGA Tour, and it's a fitness tracker that gives you insights into recovery, strain, and sleep. And I've gotten so much value out of it that I think you will as well. Make sure to use the code GSL when picking up your Whoop uh, band. It's over at whoop.com is where you can get all the info. Some of the things that I think are most important are the sleep and recovery metrics. Gives you a really good insight into what you can expect out of your day, what strain you can take on and what you shouldn't. And that seems to be one of the biggest things when I've talked with players out there using this that they're paying attention as well with. So make sure to look at that. And we have the Golf Science Lab Whoop team. That's something we're just getting started. If you pick this up or you have your own Whoop band, join the team. Um, You can get the info over at golfsciencelab.com slash whoop. There's a a code um, and you can join our team over there. This episode is sponsored by Superspeed Golf. If you don't know Superspeed, they have created one of the best training aids if you want to swing faster. It's a proven system that so many people, so many PGA Tour players are using. And they've just came out with a new product. It's Superspeed C. So here's the deal. It's counterweight training that alters the physics of your golf swing by significantly changing the balance point of the golf club and moves the mass behind your hands. This allows for a significantly faster release speed of the golf club, which produces much faster hand and arm speed. 
in your golf swing. They just released this, it's brand new. I can't wait to check it out. I have one here in the studio that I am testing and I think you should pick one up as well to learn more about. Um, you can get that over at superspeedgolf.com. Make sure to see that and learn more. All the details coming soon. This is a really unique and fascinating product um, that I think has some, some big merits for a lot of folks to help them swing faster. Yeah, so I, was, I grew up playing baseball and soccer, then some basketball. Those were my three sports. And uh, Christmas in 1996, my dad got me a, I think a 5.79 wood putter um, for Christmas. When I got the golf clubs, I, I actually built a, uh, a little nine hole course around my house. And, you know, granted, they're probably 30 yard, you know, 30 to 60 yard holes. And, um, so I kind of just, I would use my mom's, uh, garden equipment to dig holes and take sticks and put dish rags on them type deal. So growing up, it was more, you know, we didn't have a, I don't even know if we had cable. I think we just had three channels and, and, uh, so I, I spent a lot of time outside playing. I remember getting, you know, some bigger clubs, like some persimmon woods from played against sports for a dollar. And we'd go to the, you know, I got maybe when I was 10 or 11, we'd go to the baseball field and, and hit balls, you know, like the just trash balls that you'd, you know, you buy a dozen of them for a dollar at, that uh, played again so and then when we moved from the from the country we moved in in the town and i we moved right next to a nine hole course called the hill and uh it was nine dollars to play all day um you know it was the hill is a good name for it it was straight up and down the 2700 yard nine hole course so um you know i'd go out there with some buddies and and normally I'd get there early on the weekend and, and play with one friend and then another friend would come later. So, you know, some guys would play nine or 18 and I'd end up playing 36 or 54, um, pretty regularly. So I think that's kind of when I started getting good enough to where it was fun. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with it. Environment is super important when it comes to the growth and development of players. For Lanto, one, he made his own golf course. So it literally fit the skills that he had when he made it. If you've heard of Operation 36, they're shrinking the golf course down and starting golfers from 25 yards from the green and then working them back as their skills develop. For Lanto, this happened naturally. His environment changed as his skills progressed and golf stayed fun. So I think it was it was more one of those things where nobody pushed me to play at an early age. It was me wanting to me wanting to play, which I highly recommend to parents and, and young players. It's not to, you know, give your kids every opportunity and, and support them, but don't, you know, don't make them go practice for nine hours when they're eight years old and you know, and, and take the, the, the fun part away, the enjoyment. I remember vividly just getting getting there at, uh, you know, a lot of days getting there right when the sun came up and, and I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'd walk home and eat lunch or, or just grab something at the course, but it was just, you couldn't get me out of there. I would, I would just play all, play all day. And, and I remember shooting, um, I think my mom's got, I think I have a, uh, like a tin of scorecards, like a little folder of them from back then. I remember seeing some 33s and 34s and 
God knows I didn't shoot that. It was probably more in the forties taking mulligans and gimmies and all that. But, but it, uh, it's funny looking back. I mean, it was an, it's an easy golf course, but it was, uh, it was, it was a perfect place for me to get my start because you could, you know, I don't think there was a hole over 350 and, you know, there's several par fours in the 250 range. So being able to make birdies and, and, uh, and kind of have that, sense of achievement at a young age with a game kind of it drives you to want to you know keep playing and keep getting better whereas if I was on a 18 hole country club and you know I could only play after four o'clock and there'd be people pushing me and that type of deal it would have been you know it would have been it would have been a little different but um you know the nine hole the nine dollars play all day was it was just perfect for me for where I was so Lanto was a multi-sport athlete And it's something that we talk about a lot in developing good junior golfers is to not early specialize, play lots of different sports, foster that athleticism. And the question always is, when should you specialize? And it's really interesting to hear stories of how that plays out in the real world. I I was a, I was a really good baseball player. That was, that was my, my game. And I was 13 playing in the, the 14, 15 travel, like the all-star league always I'd always been the best player since I was five years old and when I played up I was the smallest kid on the team and and coach put me you know in right field and I was batting ninth and I was terrified at the plate because these you know kids were throwing 80 miles an hour and I got hit I got hit and uh I remember we were in South Boston at the state tournament and uh, I remember getting hit in the shoulder and just being like, screw this, man, I'm, I'm done. Like, this is, this is not fun anymore. So the, the enjoyment of baseball, you know, started going away for me right around that time is when one of my friends brought me down to Blacksburg country club. And I, I met the the head pro there, Steve Prater, who's my coach now. And so I got a couple lessons with him and, you know, he must've inspired me and motivated me to, you know, you have a chance to be really good if, you know, if you, if you want to be and you know, you didn't have to tell me that twice. So, uh, when I started going down there, that was kind of right when I was too small to play baseball. And, um, so I think it was just a perfect storm of, I'd always loved baseball. Golf was new to me. Golf became more fun. Um, cause it's, you know, I wasn't handicapped like I was in baseball at the time. And then it just kind of transitioned. My love for baseball started going away and, and, and golf started taking off. My dad got sick when I was in, I want to say sixth grade. And uh, when he got sick, we we kind of had to tone everything down. I couldn't really travel as much to play soccer. And, and uh, you know, he was going through treatment and being able to kind of get away from that, walk to the golf course, play as much as I want whenever I wanted. Um, that's kind of when it was like, man, this is fun. This is kind of an escape for me uh, to get away from everything that was going on. So it was kind of a... You know, if my dad never got sick, I don't, I don't think I'd, I ever would have, you know, taken golf too serious. It's hard to really know, but I, I don't, I don't think I ever would have, you know, been where I am today. You know, looking back, it's, you know, obviously, I, I wish it wouldn't have happened the way it did, but you know, I've, you know, somewhat proud of myself for turning a you know, 
probably the biggest tragedy that you can ever experience and turning it into you know my career so there's a it's pretty it's pretty cool to look look back i mean i don't look back on it that way all the time but when i you know sit back after houston it was you know it's just kind of crazy that a uh you know from my beginning to to even play golf at all i mean my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad managed a health food store so we didn't have you know, two nickels to rub together. We we got everything from played against sports, and you know, some other parents would help help support my soccer and and all those travels. So we, uh, I mean, my parents did the best they could. We had a great childhood. They were amazing parents. So Steve, the day my dad passed away, I'd been. I'd been going down to the country club a little bit, but I wasn't a member, so I couldn't really afford to go a whole lot. So I'd go down and, and do the junior clinics with them. And then um, and then I'd go to the hill and play. And the day that, you know, my dad passed away, Steve called me and, and gave me a free membership. Uh, he said he, he would teach me for free and he would, uh, you know, I had full, full pro- privileges of the course. So, I mean, that was just, I mean, that was the worst day of my life and the best day of my life, you know, at the same time, because, you know, this giant door shut and then a giant door open, you know, the opportunity and, and Steve kind of, he took me under his wing and, and I ended up, you know, spending a lot of, a lot of nights at his house because, you know, teaching pros, he would teach all day on the range. So his son was a really good golfer. He was four, four, four and a half years younger than me, but I would stay at, at his house almost every weekend and we'd be at the course until dark and then you know we'd go back and his wife would you know make a couple pizzas or whatever and we'd watch movies and then we'd get up and go to the course with steve at 7 a.m and man we hit we would be on the range for several hours and go play 18 and then come back and and so steve would it wasn't so much having you know hour two hour lessons with him but he would always you know monitor me and his son so I kind of got in that little circle with, with Steve and his son, Jack. And, and, um, you know, for whatever reason, I think it just immediately clicked for me. Like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And, you know, without Steve, you know, opening that door for me, I don't, I mean, who knows where I'd be right now. What an amazing story. And it just, first of all, thank you Talanto, for sharing that with us. I mean, it's so cool to hear from such tragedy from the hardest of times came something really amazing. And one of the things that I think is always fascinating about this time is is kind of who a player surrounds himself with. Who are they practicing with? Who are they playing with? We know kind of this instruction and maybe this mentorship role that came from his instructor. What about on the other side? We had, so there's so many juniors down there. I mean, he must have had 20 to 30 juniors you know, that would regularly be at junior clinics or, or at the course. So we had that. It, it, a lot of my friends went from, you know, I, I was friends with a lot of soccer players and, and all those kids that I played other sports with. Then now I have a whole new group of friends that played golf and we would, we would go out and gamble. We would, you know, we'd play 36 holes at the country club and, and, you know, play Wolf. We'd play Nassau's, we'd play whatever it is. So I think, wanting to beat your friends and kind of competing against each other. Cause I didn't, we didn't have the money to go play AJGAs and, you know, I, I played a couple of them, but not until I was 16 or 17. So we just found our own games and we had a, a Roanoke Valley junior golf tour. We had a Blue Ridge junior golf tour. There's two little, you know, nine hole, sometimes 18 hole tournaments 
and I'd play every single one of those. And I mean, shit, I must have had 50 trophies from those tours. So it wasn't like I was, you know, if I was playing AJGAs instead of those, I might have been, I might have progressed a little faster and I might have gotten more love from college coaches. But, you know, my reality at the time was I had to, you know, I didn't know any different. I didn't even know what the AJGA was when I was 14 or 15. I was just, you know, I was happy playing these these local tournaments and you couldn't, you know, there wasn't, I, I didn't take any of them off. And, uh, but I think that having that core group of friends that, you know, you have that camaraderie, you have that team atmosphere, even though we wanted to be each other's brains. And I mean, I remember nights, my buddy, Corey Bell, we'd go, we'd have putting contests and, you know, our parents would have to light shine the, the car lights on the putting green at nine o'clock in, in the summer, just because we, we had to, you know, finish our putting contest or, or whatever it may be. So having that, uh, I tell kids that all the time or parents, you know, at a young age, find a group, find a course that, is friendly to juniors and find a course that has a good pro that will motivate you and have, you know, have other juniors that you can compete against. Cause I, I'm a hundred percent positive that, that had a huge impact on me. One falling in love with the game because I wasn't there by myself. I wasn't there feeling like I was stepping on the members toes, even though I probably was, but just having that internal competition with yourself and then having it with your friends it made uh, it made golf fun for me, and anytime something's fun is uh, at, you know when you're a kid is the most important thing to make you want to keep doing it. One of the questions that always comes up when talking with a PGA Tour player is, "How good were you as a junior golfer when you were 13, 16? And we get some cool insights here from Lanto. You know, when you, whenever you're good at something, it's it's way more fun than you know when you're just struggling. And I obviously, I think my first nine hole tournament, I shot 51, uh, and that was at Blackbird Country Club. So it wasn't like I was a child prodigy at 13, <laughs> but I was good enough to to see that you know to see the light at the end of the tunnel type deal. So probably when I was 14, I know my freshman year in high school. Our first match, you know, my best friend now, uh, Oliver, was two years older than me, and he, uh, my, he was, he was the golfer in our area, and and he would beat the crap out of me every time we played. But our first, uh, my first tournament freshman year, uh, I beat him, and I think that that day was like, all right, you're pretty, you're pretty good, because I went from shooting fifty one on nine holes when I was thirteen to, you know, when I was shortly after I turned 14, I shot 71 on the same course and, and won the first high school tournament. So, um, those two years, you know, from when I was, you know, 12 to 14, I, I improved a ton. Um, so that was, I think that, that part of it was fun for me. By the end of high school, um, were you, were you a pretty well-ranked junior in the area, like in, in competing, you know, by, by the end of that? I was, I was, uh, you know, I got better every year. So I wasn't, I wasn't the, you know, the kid where college coaches were calling, knocking down the door. My, my grades weren't, weren't amazing. I, I think I had a 3.2 in high school. So, um, that held me back a little bit. Uh, Virginia tech and I was six, 16. I, I think I just turned 17. It was a summer before my senior year in, in high school. I shot, I shot 61 at Blacksburg country club where I grew up playing with a Virginia tech coach watching me and he watched the entire round. And, you know, my only goal was to go to Virginia tech. And when I, we went in for me and my mom went and sat down with both the coaches 
and I thought they were going to offer me a spot on the team or a scholarship or something. And he told me that he wanted to see my algebra grades, um, my fresh, my, or my senior year or the spring semester. So that was like getting kicked in the balls. I mean, that, that hurt pretty bad. I thought I was going to be a, a Virginia Tech Hokie and, and it, it didn't work out. You know, I was really good in, in our area, but I wasn't a nationally ranked um you know player I, I didn't win any AJGAs I didn't win any national tournaments I didn't never qualified for the U.S. Amateur or the U.S. Junior um so it wasn't like it was a, a big snub but it was like all right well if you want to you know if you want to be good you're gonna have to get better Virginia Virginia Commonwealth came along and and the coach Matt Ball gave me a full scholarship you know when you have your heart set on something and it doesn't work out you know there's two ways you can either discourage you or it can motivate you and I you know I, it just turned to fuel for me I it pissed me off and and uh made me want to work even harder when I went to VCU it was it was a huge wake-up call going from a small town to a you know fairly large city um so going there was was big I didn't I didn't have as much you know, Steve Prater gave me a lot of instruction, but I didn't know anything about working out. There was no track man, so there was no, you know, any of this stuff. So I was a scrawny 162 pounds when I went to college. And, and, uh, so it was, it, I wasn't ready to play a big time, you know, division one team. I could have been a role player at tech. I, I would have been probably a fourth or fifth guy my freshman year, but I went to VCU and I was, you know, probably the best player my freshman year, maybe not the best player, me and Rafa Campos, who's on the PGA Tour. It's kind of me and him were, you know, one, two, three, four in that area. And then, you know, sophomore year, you know, I got a little bit better and, and me and Rafa kind of, I think me and Rafa kind of push each other to get better. And um, so it's just kind of a gradual, it, it, ever since I was 13, I feel like I've gotten better every year. It hasn't been as, as fast as I'd like, but um one thing I've thought about a lot is a lot of a lot of the young, you know, young players that are number one in the country winning the U.S. kids and the junior world and they're traveling all around the world when they're 12 years old. One, it can wear you out. You can get burnt out at a young age. And then also, I feel like a lot of these prodigies, everybody tells them how good they are. And at a certain time, they start kind of feeling like they're invincible and they don't need to work as hard. Um now, obviously, there's guys like Jordan Spieth and Ricky Fowler that that keep progressing and that they really are the prodigy. But you see so many All-Americans, AJJ All-Americans that don't do anything in college or they don't or they might be a first team All-American in college or freshman year. And then all of a sudden they don't ever even, you know, make it to the PGA Tour. So uh, looking back on it, I think it, it was kind of the perfect storm for me is just uh, I always had that carrot dangling. I was never the in my hometown, I was the man. I was the best player. But, you know, when I went to play bigger tournaments, when, when I got to college, I, I was never the best player. I was always, I always had that, that goal to, to kind of chase. So I always, I was always motivated. I mean, I was always, um, you know, wanting to be better than I was and, and knew I needed to get better. So in college, I was a I was a good player in college. I had you know, 15 top fives in college, I think, but I never won. So I wasn't I wasn't ready to win big tournaments yet. And um, so when I when I came out and turned pro, you know, I I, I wasn't 
I wasn't the player that was like, all right, I'm going to be on the PGA Tour in two years, or I expected to be on the Nationwide Tour at the time, and now it's Corn Ferry Tour. You know, I was just, I was so happy playing mini tours at the time. I felt, you know, mini tours were, you know, incredible at the time. And, um, but I, I went to Q school my first year. I missed first stage. Um, I bogeyed the last four holes to miss by three, I think. I played with Chesson Hadley the last round. So the next year, I know I ended up playing up another full year of mini tours. And the next two years, I made it through first stage and I missed, I missed second stage by maybe, five to 10 shots each year, minimum, minimum of five, probably closer to 10. So when that happened, uh, Steve, you know, Steve had heard about Todd Anderson and he knew him, you know, he didn't know him personally, but he knew how good of a coach he was. And he had a couple of players go to him that he knew. And, and he really liked Todd's philosophy. He knew he was, he had a lot of tour players. So Steve actually 2013, I missed, I missed second stage of Q school in Dallas and Steve, you know, me and Steve are talking. I'm frustrated. I, you know, I wasn't even close to making it. It was actually the year Justin Thomas um, made it through second stage. And Steve was like, you know, I think it's time for you to go get some, you know, get another opinion. So, you know, he was like, let's get you set up with Todd Anderson. Um, you know, he's he, he knows some guys in Roanoke that would pay for it because Todd was expensive. And he poured everything he had into my golf game. And he got me the college and he got me a scholarship and he did all this for me and then he had the um yeah he, he had the ability to to take his ego out of it and and recommend me to go see todd we we come now we've been a team for the last six years and in the first year 2014 i made it through second stage that was a huge accomplishment for me you know dealing with acute school pressure and and uh you know i didn't I did take off right after that. I only played in one or corn ferry tour event that year. And, but I saw steady improvements. You know, I, I had some really good instruction on a tour level and then he would, him and Todd would talk. And so we just worked as a team and, and then, uh, I've, I've progressed, you know, Steve got me to a certain level. Steve knew he couldn't, he couldn't get me to where I needed to be. And, and so he brought in Todd and, and now the rest is history. So. I think it's fascinating to hear such confidence in a, in a coaching switch and, you know, the ability for Todd to help him make it to the next level. So I was really curious to learn more of, you know, was it just a golf swing thing or was there something more than that? The fact that Todd even wanted to work with me was it gave me confidence knowing that, you know, he was a top 10 coach in the world, uh, you know, ranked, you know, he's ranked in the top 10 and he had all these tour players and, and he hearing him you know, be like, you know, I, you know, your golf swing's great. You have a ton of ability. I didn't believe in myself at all. I mean, I, to a certain extent I did, but I, you know, I, I've always had doubts. Am I good enough? Am I, you know, cause being trying to be, you know, one of the top players in the world at anything, whether it's music or baseball or golf or, uh, even a scientist, whatever it may be. I mean, there's so many people that try and fail, and to be the, the to get to the top, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of good, you know, good breaks, having the right people in your, on your team and having somebody like Todd come in and reinforce that, Hey, you are good enough. You know, I believe in you, even if, even though I didn't believe in myself, knowing that he believed in me, it helps me believe in myself. So I, I you know, when I'd go to the course and go to tournaments, you know, you know, having a coach like Todd on your side, you know, it's saying stuff like that, you know, if he believes it, then maybe I am good enough, even though you have to, and, you know, you have to prove it to yourself. People that always, people that talk themselves up, 
it's usually a false sense of security. They're, they, they want you to think they're good, even though they don't think it, um, which that wasn't, you know, that wasn't me. I was, I knew I was really good in, in, in the, in the small world, but if I wanted to be really good in the big world, I had to, you know, I had to find some, some more self-belief and, and to have somebody like Todd come in and, and tweak me up and, and, and be willing to even work with me, that did wonders for my confidence. From a swing standpoint, I was always I had a short backswing. Um, it was more armsy in the in the transition, and then I would get real shallow and I'd slide into it. So when Todd, me and Todd started working, he wanted me to to have a deeper backswing with more whip, and then be more rotational to where I wouldn't slide in and use my hands. So that that part was really hard for me because that was different than anything I've ever done. But anytime you have more depth, and I mean, I still struggle with it. It's it's what me and Todd and Steve work on constantly is having more depth in the backswing, not falling back, not dropping my not my head not dropping. Because anytime I've always struggled with my right shoulder dropping in the transition and my hands pulling down. And when you do that, the only way to save it is to shut the face down and and square it up that way. So my recent success, the last you know year or so, I've gotten really good at you know, getting my hands higher and getting more depth in the backswing and then being my tempo has gotten a lot better where I don't rely on timing. So from that aspect, being a little bit more stable over it. So I'm not falling, you know, I'm not falling left on my backswing and then falling back on my downswing. Now I'm getting behind it and then trying to cover it with my chest. I always had a, I feel like I always played a draw uh, pretty much my whole life and I'd always have a double miss you know a lot of, I, did, I did I can't tell you many times I've you know I've been trying to hit a draw and I'd hit a low hook or the miss would be a, a block slice so basically I would get stuck and narrow and then if if I wanted to save if I didn't want it to go right I'd shut it down and hit a heel pull draw so two years ago I, I'm qualified for the U.S. Open and for whatever reason I got to Shinnecock and I was so tired of having a double miss and the, the rough was so long, like three to four feet. And the fairways were somewhat generous for us open, but if you were off the fairway, you had no shot. So I remember getting there and thinking and being on the range and just, just hitting cuts. And I never, I'd never gone to a cut full time, but that week I went, you know, I would just kind of feel like I chop over it and hit like a spinny cut out in the fairway. And that was one of the best driving weeks. I ended up missing the cut by one, but I drove it. I drove it pretty well. So ever since that week, you know, I've gone to a cut, you know, I've gone to a cut full time and it, it still wasn't perfect. I mean, I, you know, I'd still hit double misses and everything, but from a, it's hard to, it's hard to change 10, 15 years of doing something, you know, overnight. So Lanto made it onto the Corn Ferry Tour in 2017. In fact, he had an incredible year. He picked up a victory and ended up making it to the PGA Tour in 2018. He had his dream job. And then he didn't play well. He ended up losing his card and having to go back to the Corn Ferry Tour. Well, when you go, I mean, you get your dream job and it gets taken away from you it's it's hard to go back i mean i if somebody had told me when in 2012 hey look you're gonna you're gonna get your corn fairy tour card you're gonna play a couple of years and that's it i you know i probably would have taken it you know because that was you know the goal was always to, to win on the pga tour but you can't get there without getting to the you know the 
the minor league. So, you know, going and getting a taste of the PGA Tour, having a really good shot to keep your card in the in the finals, and then it not happening. It was I, I needed a break. I needed to get away. I was playing 2017. I played 13 straight weeks in the summer, and then last last season on the PGA Tour, I played you know nine straight weeks or 10 straight weeks. So, and I was burnt out. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, when you're a kid, you're playing you know, you play for the love of the game and we still do. I mean, I feel like a lot of tour players still love the game, but at the same time, it's a job. I mean, if you don't perform, you're not paying bills, you're not going to continue to play. So it's definitely a job now, but those two or three months, I made enough money on the PGA tour to where I didn't have to go get a job. I didn't have to go play mini tour events to support myself. I had a little bit of a cushion to where, all right, for the first time in your life, you know, obviously I just lost my dream job. And I didn't want to go back to the corn fairy tour, but at the same time, I was like, all right, I can take a little breather, reflect, you know, two weeks after I lost my card, I ended up closing on a house. So I, for me, I got away from golf by renovating my house. I painted, you know, I did a lot of painting. I did a lot of, you know, building furniture, setting it up, um, building walls and, you know, just doing some stuff that I've never been able to do in my life. And that kind of got me, you know, when you, when you do stuff around the house for two months, straight and you know you're working until 3 4 a.m some nights painting your bathroom and being on your knees and it makes you you're like man i'm pretty lucky to play golf when i got to the bahamas the first event of the year in exuma i was i mean i was rusty i was i was hitting it well and my game felt good but i mean you take three months off of, of competitive golf it's hard to get back into it so i, I went to the pro-am dinner and Greg Norman was there. He was giving a little talk, and he uh, he he built the course there in Exuma. And, and he he made one comment that really resonated with me. He was like, "When I look at players, you know, that win and then they miss three cuts in a row and finish 70th, and then you know, those guys aren't ready for the PGA Tour. Those guys aren't ready to be you know world number one or to be you know top hundred in the world, whatever it may be. Keep their card." He's like, "I look at the guys that are consistently finishing top 25, top 20." You know, they'll, they'll have a win, but then finish 12th and 28th and then 13th. And I was like, man, and I looked back at my results and I was like, I've had so many miscuts, 70th places, 50th. I didn't, I wasn't consistently up there on the top. So I was like, man, that's, that makes total sense to me. Cause if you can week in, week out, if you can keep giving yourself chances to be successful and be you know, maybe not win, but finish, you know, turn a 40th place into a 20th place. Those add up over the season. So that was immediately, I was like, all right, that's my new goal. Um, I want to have a lot of top 25s and, and la this, oh, not last year, this season, I think I had 11 top 22s on the corn Ferry tour and I included a win in a second. So I ended up finishing fifth on the, uh, on the, the points list this year, got my card back and going into the PGA tour season, I had the same mindset. I'm going to grind out every single shot, you know, give it everything I got every week. And it takes, it's, it's incredible how exhausted I am after weeks now because I really don't take, take for granted any shot now. Whereas in the past, I remember, you know, being over a shot and I look up and I'm, I'm aiming too far right. And I don't really have a clear picture. And I'm just like, all right, I'm just going to hit it. Cause a lot of times you'll still pull it off and you'll hit a decent shot. But those, those lacks of, or lack of focus, that, that's when the double miss comes in and I make a triple. I mean, I always had big numbers. And if you look at my stats now and I make, I don't make very many bogeys anymore, which has never been me. And, um, I can, I, I contributed that to, 
you know, guys like Greg Carton helping me with the mental side a little bit, but also internally just wanting to be, wanting to be consistent and wanting to be, you know, kind of be a master at my trade. I don't know. That sounds kind of weird, but you know, just not really taking anything for granted because if you do, you know, that can backfire and then you get, you know, you get on tilt and you get emotional and all this. So if you can go out there on every single shot and give it everything you have, it's way easier to accept bad weeks and it's way easier to accept, you know, poor results, you know, throwing in the towel and, and cashing it in. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I did it a ton, but in college, I definitely, you, you can't shoot 78 to 82 on the easy golf courses without cashing it in and, and giving up. And I'd have several rounds a year where I would do that. And now, you know, now it's different. I've had six top twenties in a row on the PGA tour, including a win. And, and it's, it's kind of paramount going back to that talk. I heard, you know, Greg, Greg Norman give that, that kind of, that lit a fire under me to, to want to be that guy that, you know, one of the legends talked about. So, um, so that part's pretty gratifying that I'm consistently, and I, I know it's not going to last forever. I'm going to have, I'm going to miss cuts and I'm going to have bad weeks and whatever, but I've made, I think I've made 14 straight cuts on the PGA tour now. So, um, something mentally has clicked to where I'm, you know, I'm really giving it everything I got. Lanto ended up back on the corn Ferry tour for the 2019 season. He went from the corn Ferry in 2017 to the PGA tour, back to the corn Ferry, won again and ended up back on the PGA tour for this season. Just a few starts in at the Houston open. He ended up winning, winning a PGA tour event after going through all the many tours, Corn Ferry Tour, losing his dream job, it all came together. It's, it's cool looking back that I've experienced literally everything you could ever experience on a, in, a, in a professional golf, I've done it. I've done the Moonlights one days, I've done 30 or 40 Monday qualifiers, I've done Latin Tour, I've done, you know, I've went over to Europe, I've been to Africa to play golf. So now, you know, playing on the PGA Tour and actually winning and having a three-year exemption, I appreciate it way more than I would have if I came out when I was 22 and, and, you know, won my rookie year and like a lot of these kids do. Now, granted, I wish I would have done that because my retirement, my retirement and my endorsements would be a completely different level. But I have a lot of appreciation for where I am because I've, you know, I know how hard it was on those, you know, going to Q school six straight years. I mean, holy, I mean, talk about not being able to sleep, you know. Man, I'll tell you one story from Q School. It was actually three years ago today. Um, it was at Plantation Preserve. It was, uh, I had the chipping yips. I had the full-blown chipping yips, but I was hitting it. I was putting it really well. And I was hitting it okay. So the first round, I'm 500 through 11. You know, my caddy is one of my good friends, you know, Tyler Sloman. So we we on the first, uh, we got on the third hole. I started on the back and I'm 500, kind of on cruise control. And I'm on the front fringe but there was kind of a little elbow on the green. The pin was tucked kind of behind it on the back left. So there was water behind it, you know, 20 yards behind the pin. And if I putted it, uh, I couldn't get it inside 12 feet. If I had a perfect putt and rolled it up through the fringe, it would still be 12 feet right. So he was like, yeah, just, you know, just throw a little nipper over that slope and it'll be, you know, I, I could have hit it. To, right now, if I chipped it, I'd probably hit it inside five feet, you know, probably 95% of the time. Well, I double hit it and made triple. And so the the full blown chipping yips were there already and protecting confidence going back to what I said earlier, I should have putted it made bogey or made the 15 footer and been, been away with it. But that double hitting that chip and making triple, not only did I go back to two under on day one, 
is I didn't want to chip the rest of the tournament. So fast forward, I'm, I'm seven under and I'm one shot going into the final round. The number was at six under. So I had a one shot cushion. I couldn't sleep that night because I knew if I missed the green, I was going to make double, maybe make bogey if I got lucky, but I was definitely not getting anything up and down that day. Um, this was before I worked with Greg and, uh, I went out that final round and I shot, uh, I hit 18 green shot 64 and one by two, but even coming down 16, I had a, I think I was five or six under on the day and I was probably five or six shots in front of the number. I still felt like if I missed the green, I could make a 10 because I just couldn't, I couldn't control my hands and I could whiff it or blade it or whatever it may be. So that, that was pretty crazy that three years ago, that was my mindset and then fast forward three years and now i'm in the masters and all this so it's crazy what you know what how life can change in three years i'm glad i i'm glad i hit every green because if i hadn't got through that day with the chipping yips you know down in plantation there's no way i'd you know be holding the houston open trophy and and have this three-year exemption so thank you so much for listening to this episode of the golf science lab podcast Huge thanks to Lanto Griffin for hanging out with us for quite a while and sharing his story. If you want to listen to the unedited version of this podcast, that will be in the podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned there. We have so much more coming to you this year. Make sure to check out our sponsors, Whoop and Super Speed, and learn more about what they're doing as well. Other than that, this episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker, and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.